Revelation chapter 15, starting at verse 5 and reading all the way through to the end of chapter 16. So, after these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels was completed. And that is the word Tetelestai finished or paid in full. And chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. That includes all the oceans. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is, and who was, and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire, and men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs, which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gather them together in the place called in Hebrew Armageddon or Armageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, or atmosphere, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, that's Jerusalem, and the cities of the nations fell, that's all the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. It's about 100 pounds or 45 kilos. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail since the plague was exceedingly great. Wow. So, there's the end of the world as we know it. The end of the world with human government. That's how it's all going to finish. Anything that was built 
created by man, is going to be destroyed. Is going to be complete destruction and misery beyond measure. Now, the phrase, those who dwell on the earth, we went through it last time. That's a single word in the Greek, and it means those so identify with the things of this earth that they possess him. And those are the people who are being judged. Those who identify, who find their satisfaction, who find their identity with the things of the world. And those things, because they worship them, they possess them. We become like the things we worship. So, we can choose to love the world and the world system, or we can choose to love God. And the people that we're going to see in chapter 16 choose to love the world and the world system. And, as a result, they harden their hearts and they become completely unrepentant. And nothing that God does can change them. Neither blessings nor trials, neither hard times or good times will change them. They have completely rejected God and everything he represents. So, what is repentance? I just want to remind us of this. Repentance at its heart is responding, us responding to God's kindness towards us, which causes us to want to surrender our life and will to God. So we want to live a life that pleases him. We replace our will, which is what we want to do, with God's will, which is what God wants to do. And we do it willingly. We do it because we want to, not because we have to, right? And we learned last time about being a bondservant of Jesus Christ. So remember, if you're a Hebrew slave in a family, you would stay there for seven years, and then you'd be released. But if you didn't want to be released, you could say to the family, I love you, and that's the motive, I love you, okay? You're my master, but I want to be a part of this family forever for the rest of my life, and he'll take you to the city gate and in front of the elders and to a doorpost and put a big hole in your ear with an awl, and you would be a servant in that family for life, but not because you had to, but because you wanted to. And the New Testament writers like Peter and Paul and James and that, they identify themselves as bond servants, servants for love for life. So again, this chapter records chronologically the end of this world as we know it, the end of the era of human government. Because when Jesus comes back, it's his government. Jesus rules on the earth, and he rules the entire earth with a, what does it say in Psalm 2? A rod of iron, yeah. So these judgments don't destroy the planet, but they destroy everything that man has made from the flood until now. Also, these events, these seven bowl judgments, they happen quite rapidly. And they must occur at the end, the very end of the seven-year tribulation, because otherwise no one would survive. If you've got no fresh water and all the oceans are dead, the ecology of the earth is ruined, completely destroyed, no one would survive. And that's why, after we've read those verses, these verses in Matthew start to make a lot more sense. So this is Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22. I'm going to read it from two translations. It says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And the New Living Version says, For there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began, and it will never be so great again. In fact, unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive. But it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen ones. This here would be children of Israel and most likely the tribulation saints. It's not the church. So basically the elect in the scriptures, is in the Old Testament it's always Israel. In the New Testament it can be Israel or the church depending on the context. The church is not in the tribulation. So it can't be referring to the church. So we're not in there, so we don't have to survive this. We're watching from heaven. So that was a good question, that question about who is the elect. So just remember, in the Old Testament, the elect is always Israel because there was no church in the Old Testament. It didn't exist. It was never mentioned. It was not even thought of. It was not even 
predicted or prophesied. It was a mystery, something that wasn't revealed until the New Testament, right? In the New Testament, depending on the context, Jesus could be talking about, or the scriptures could be talking about, Israel or the church. And since the church is not in the tribulation, it must be talking about Israel and the tribulation believers, those who come to believe during the tribulation. Now, what happens next? We've just read through the passage and it finishes with this great earthquake and the hail and all the oceans are blood, all the streams and rivers and lakes are blood. Uh, all the people are suffering, all the unbelievers are suffering from these major boils and these painful sores. What's going to happen next? The very next thing is Jesus comes back. It's the second coming. And guess who comes back with him? Us. Okay? So, you can book in horse riding lessons with me so you can get ready to ride your white horses. No. <laughs> so, when Jesus comes back, he will renovate the planet, he will reset the ecology, and he'll make it livable again. But more than livable, he's going to make it like the Garden of Eden. It's going to be awesome. He will be ruling the earth with an iron rod for a thousand years. Now, I'm going to just go back a little bit. In the book of Revelation, we have three great signs. So this is like getting the big picture, and it's also a picture of the gospel, so that's why I'm doing this. They originate in heaven. So these signs originate in heaven, and they affect the whole of mankind. So the first sign is found in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, and it's the woman. And this woman is a picture of Israel throughout history. And the verse says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. We went back and we studied this previously to Genesis and found out why it refers to Israel. It's Joseph's dream. So the first of the three great signs given to mankind is the nation of Israel. It's her history, and it's the primary reason why Israel was created. What's the reason? The Saviour, the Messiah, comes from Israel. God saves the world through Israel, through the Messiah who comes from Israel. And as we read through chapter 12, or as he read through chapter 12, we also see the one who was always trying to destroy Israel, and that is Satan. Now the second sign is in Revelation 12, 3 and 9, and it's Satan and also the seven world empires or kingdoms. I'll just read those two verses. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, that's Satan, having seven heads and ten horns, so the seven heads of the seven main world empires, Roman Empire, etc., Grecian Empire, Babylonian Empire, and ten horns, that's the, the ten last kings who will reign during this last seven-year period. And so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who continually deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So why is this a great sign? Well, this helps us to understand how Satan has influenced history. He has used and influenced human government to gain influence over the world. So you wonder why our governments are so corrupt? It's because Satan is behind it. As I said before, the seven heads represent the seven great world empires. And finishing with the seventh, the revived Roman Empire, and that's the one that has the ten crowns, the ten leaders who will be ruling during those last seven years. Now the third sign, Revelation 15 verse 1, it's the seven last plagues or bold judgments, which we just read about. And I'll just read that. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, from them, the wrath of God is complete. Now, these shallow bowls that it's talking there, it's the same word for the word used for censer. Okay? Those shallow bowls, they put the incense on there and put some coals on there, some fire, and it would cause the smoke to come up from the censer. And you get this nice smell. So it's like burning incense. They use them to burn incense. Now, incense in the scripture, this represents prayer, right? 
So these bowls, they're coming out from the temple. And that's exactly what they use these things for in the temple, to burn incense representing the prayers of the saints. So if the bowls contain the prayers of the saints, what were their prayers? Well, if you go back to Revelation 6.10, it says, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now remember, those who dwell on the earth are the unbelievers. So the people praying this prayer are the tribulation believers who had been brutally tortured and murdered by those who dwell on the earth, by the unbelievers. Okay, They've been hacked to death, whatever, uh, had their heads chopped off. They've been treated extremely poorly. So here now in Revelation 16, we have the final answer to their prayers. Brutal judgments as fair justice for the brutal treatment of God's people. Now, it's a good time to remind us that we need to be active in sharing with our friends, warning our friends that there is a judgment coming. Okay, This time of the tribulation is not a good time to be in. If you go through it, yes, you can be saved, but most likely you will die a gruesome death. We want to spare, if we can, our friends and our family from that gruesome death. But the other option is even worse. The other option is if you don't believe and you end up worshipping Satan and you're eternally damned. So there's going to be a strong delusion here. Even though there's going to be a lot of evangelism, we spoke about that previously, there's also going to be a strong deception. So much better to avoid it completely. Give your heart to Jesus now. Repent and believe. Surrender your will to God's and receive his forgiveness. So I want to link these three signs together. Firstly, God creates Israel so as to provide a saviour and gives the world the opportunity to be saved. Secondly, Satan works through human government to deceive the world, turning them against God. Now, you go back to Tarah Babel, what was the guy's name? Mighty hunter against the Lord. Nimrod, yeah, okay. This whole Babylon thing started all the way back there. So Satan has been working through human government, trying to turn people against God, and he's been persecuting the nation of Israel and lately, in the last 2,000 years, the church. Now, the third sign is that God judges those who refuse to repent, who refuse to accept God's gift of pardon. Those who so identify with the things of this world that they possess him, okay, they will be judged. So here is the gospel. God provides a saviour. Satan opposes. We have to make a choice. And if you don't repent, you will be judged. So these are the three great signs. One more thing, these judgments are directly from God. So some of the other judgments, seal judgments and the trumpet judgments, they could be natural. They could be like due to war. But these are all completely supernatural. Now, let's go back to verse 1. Let's go verse by verse. Revelation 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So, who is this voice? If no one can be in the temple, it must be God. Okay, so a bit of logic there. So, it's God Himself who personally initiates the horrific judgments that come with these seven bold judgments. And if you're following the three woes, I won't go into it now, but this is the third woe, okay, described in Revelation 11.14. And now when God judges, and there's two purposes, there's a, it's like a chastisement and the purpose to bring repentance, and there's also justice, okay, as a, as a punishment. So, now as believers, does God punish us or does he chastise us? Only chastises, yeah. So here in this era, 
in the tribulation, it's both, okay? Because God wants the unbelievers to come to saving faith, but he's also fair in judging them. Again, these events occur at the end of the seven-year period, the tribulation, right before Jesus comes back. And I've got a note there in your notes. It's a quote from David Guzik, and it just refers to how a lot of these plagues, or some of these plagues, are very similar to the plagues that God used in Egypt to humble the Egyptians, including the boils, the waters turning to blood, and the darkness. Now, on the earth, this is pretty obvious, this is where the judgments will occur. So I just want to go back to something we talked about before. There's different views of Revelation. There's some people who have the what we call the preterist view. They have an allegorical or non-literal interpretation of prophecy, and they believe that the book of Revelation is history and not future. So we've read through the seven bowls, that all the oceans are turned to blood, all the rivers and streams are turned to blood. There's 100-pound hailstones or 45-kilo hailstones around the whole world. There's this earthquake which has flattened every single building and it's split Jerusalem into three parts. Now, could you tell me when in history those have happened? <laughs> These judgments, you cannot try and allegorize or anything like that. It's just impossible, okay? So if you're a preterist, then this passage is really difficult for you. And there's an example here, just one commentator called Paul. He says the earth might mean some parts of the earth. <laughs> he says the earth might mean the common people. He says the earth might mean the Roman Empire. He says the earth might mean the Roman Catholic clergy. <laughs> well, listen, if we don't take the Bible literally, it just doesn't make sense. When you do take it literally, and everything happens in its own time, when it's supposed to happen, then it makes perfect sense and it fits Otherwise, you're just making wild guesses and trying to fit stuff in and, and it just doesn't make sense. All right. The Bible is inspired and we call it plenary verbal inspiration. The whole Bible is inspired and every word is inspired. And therefore, all prophecy must be taken literally. And if you think about it, all fulfilled prophecy, all prophecy that should have been fulfilled and has been fulfilled, it was fulfilled literally. So why wouldn't all future prophecy also be fulfilled literally? And then there's those who might say, hang on a second, Revelation is full of signs and symbols. You can't take that literally. Well, every sign and symbol in Revelation has a literal meaning. We just have to go through the scriptures to find what the meaning of the sign is, what it refers to, to know the literal meaning and then for get the correct interpretation. All right, let's go to verse 2. So the first went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. So this is the boils and terrible sores. Now it's only for who? Those who dwell on the earth, those who have received what? The mark of the beast. Okay, so if you're a tribulation saint, whether you be a Jew or Gentile, you will not receive, you will not partake of this judgment. Now the second bowl, the sea turned to blood, verse 3. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it became blood as of a dead man and every living creature in the sea died. So what's the blood of a dead man like? Thick and gooey, right? That's a nice picture before lunch. So the sea, the Bible refers to the sea singular, but it includes all the oceans because all the oceans are linked. So basically the entire ocean system becomes blood. And in Revelation 8, verses 8 and 9, the second trumpet judgment, it described a partial contamination that's one-third of the sea, but here all the oceans are turned to blood. And so 
every living creature and they say diet. So no more sushi, <laughs> no more <laughs> no more scuba diving for me. Okay. Blood represents death, okay, in this case. And it says blood as of a dead man. So the seed doesn't necessarily literally become exactly like what it's saying, but it looks like that, it feels like that, and it probably smells like that too. No, you wouldn't be swimming in it, yeah, because everything in it dies. No. Thick, gooey, dead men's blood. No, thank you. All right. Now verse 4. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. So this is all the fresh water of the world is contaminated. It's turned into blood. So this shows that it must be only a very short time before Jesus comes back because you can't survive without water. So I don't know whether, like in Egypt, they can dig for water. I don't know, maybe that's true. But yeah, it's not going to be very good. We just had the question, the timing, if the rivers are turned to blood, you know, are the people going to die because of lack of water after three days or four days or so? But the Bible doesn't give us all the information. It doesn't tell us if these plagues, once they start, are going to continue to the end or if they're only for a, a period of time. So it could be that they're for a period of time, maybe a few days, maybe up to a week, who knows. It doesn't say whether it's going to go right to the end or just be for a short time. So it could be that there are a few months before and this judgment comes. And like in the, in the plague in Egypt, it was only there for seven days. We just don't know. That's something we'll have to wait and see. Now we go on to verses 5 to 7. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is, are, and who was, were, and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another voice, or another from the altar saying, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So, here we have this awful judgment, the waters being turned to blood, and we have this little insert here saying it's okay because what God is doing is fair. Because you might think, well, that's a terrible thing to do. Do these people really deserve to be treated that way? Well, yes. And it tells us why here. Basically, in Verse 6 is the the justification for God's pouring out this horrible judgment. It says, For they have shed, that is the unbelievers, have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And then the next verse continues, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And verse 5 even starts with, You are righteous, O Lord, you are fair because you have judged these things. So if God didn't judge him with such a harsh judgment, he wouldn't be fair, because they deserve a harsh judgment. So they have killed millions at this stage of the tribulation, millions and millions most likely, of tribulation believers will have been killed. So they are responsible, directly responsible for the blood of, or shedding the blood of millions of tribulation believers, Jew and Gentile. Now there's an interesting thing in verse 5. The one who is, are, and the one who was, were. So, you know, in Isaiah, let us send, or who shall we send? And in Genesis, let us make man in our image. It uses a plural. So, the one, that's God, God is one, who are and who were. Plural. Okay, in the original Greek, it's plural. So, again, more evidence for Trinity. The triune God. Trinity means three. Three in one. God, 
Three persons and one God. Now, verse 7, it says, I heard another from the altar saying. Now, some people say this could be an angel speaking from the altar, but I think it's more likely that it represents the corporate testimony or the corporate prayers of the tribulation martyrs who, in Revelation 6-9, are described as being under the altar. So they sacrificed their lives. They gave their lives for the sake of the gospel. They allowed themselves to be killed. They're in heaven, but they're described as being under the altar. And Revelation 8, 3 and 5 talks about the prayers of the saints. So putting those things together, this voice that comes from under the altar, it's not the altar speaking, so to speak, but it's the prayers of those who have been killed. And now the fourth bowl, Revelation 16, verses 8 and 9, the sun scorches men. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. And power was given to him to scorch men with fire. So we love the sun, you know, we go and sunbake, but <laughs> you won't be sunbaking. You'd be burnt to a crisp, literally. Fire, scorch men with fire, all right? Now, this is global warming. This is true global warming, all right? Now, it's going to come suddenly and it's going to have nothing to do with men's activities and men's actions, okay? Now, going back, you know, 50, 60, 80 years, people have been having these doomsday predictions about, oh, the earth is going to end if we don't do this, we're going to run out of oil and all this kind of stuff. Guess what? They've always been wrong. So it's just hype. It's just getting people worried. Yes, we do need to be good stewards of our planet. But as Christians, we don't need to worry about this hype of global warming. You know, the American New Green Deal, we've got six years before the world ends or whatever they say, before everything, the ecology stops working. So, you know, they say that the world is going to end because there's too many cows and too many cars. But none of those predictions come true. God promised in Genesis 8.22 that he will keep the planet going and the seasons happening. All right? Until he comes back. So don't stress about global warming. All right. Verse 9, they did not repent and give him glory. Now, this is really important. These people, these unbelievers, are refusing to repent despite having the clear knowledge of God's existence and of the coming judgment. Okay? So judgment will not change man's sinful condition. and. Their hearts are so hard because they have continually refused to repent. Now, last time we met, we talked about repentance and we read Romans chapter 2, verse 4. And the key here is that those who are not won by grace will never be won. Because Romans chapter 2, verse 4 tells us it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So let's just have a look and we'll read Romans chapter 2, verses 2 to 9. Because this is very relevant for the people in this age as well as for us today. Okay, So Romans 2 verses 2 to 9. And we know that God, in his justice, will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin, that is to repent? But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, I've highlighted that there, keep on doing good, 
seeking after the glory and honour and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil. Yep. I would say here, he gives eternal life to those who keep on doing good. So if you're saved, it means you've repented. It means that you've stopped doing wickedness, right? Because this is a continual doing of wickedness. It's in the present tense. It means you keep on doing without stopping. So the unbeliever has never ever repented. So the wicked person has never stopped doing the wrong thing. They've never turned from their sin and never turned to God. So it's been a continual rebellion against God for their entire life. If they've never truly repented, if they've never truly confessed Jesus Lord and made him the Lord of their life, submitted to his will, then they've never been saved. Yeah. For those who keep on doing good, so for those of us who are saved, basically we do mess up, do stuff up, but what do we do? We keep on repenting and we keep on doing good. We keep on coming back on track. Yeah. And it's grace that keeps us there. Yeah, you can be saved in the tribulation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It says multitudes will be saved during the tribulation. They'll be killed for their faith. God will enable some of them to live through. So, thinking about this idea that we can't force people to repent, God doesn't force people to repent, and we see that God smashing them with these judgments is not causing them to repent. Think about family, okay? We need discipline in family, but long-term obedience is always driven by love. You can use consequences to change behavior, but unless there's relationship, there'll be no permanent change. And that's why it works in the Christian life too. You can have a false conversion, you can have a temporary change in behavior, for whatever reason, you know, you're a guy and there's a girl in the church and you want to impress her, <laughs> whatever reason you have for having a temporary change in behavior, but a permanent change in behavior always has to do with a relationship. So it starts with understanding who God is and loving him, and that causes us to have a permanent change in our hearts. So going on to verse 10 and 11, the fifth bowl, a plague of darkness. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. Now this tells us, with the, it says there, and their sores, their sores seem to have gone on for all this time. That was the first plague and they're still there. So it doesn't say anything about the blood, but it says their sores are still there. And uh, his kingdom became full of darkness. Well, this happened in Egypt too, back in Exodus 10, 21, 22. And here it's associated with excruciating pain. Now, where is his kingdom? Well, it's we'll get into this next week, but most likely Rome and the surrounding nations, okay? Western Europe. That's the original Roman Empire. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. And now it's a good quote here from David Guzik. It says, The darkness of the fifth bowl is like a preview of hell itself, which is described by Jesus as the outer darkness, Matthew 25.30. Those under the judgment of this fifth bowl stand, as it were, on the shores of the lake of fire. <laughs> so, you know, some people say, I don't mind going to hell, all my buddies will be there. No, you won't see them. You won't know where they are. You'll just be in your own personal agony. And in verse 11 it says, And they did not repent of their deeds. Now, what happens here? They're increasing their sin when they're under God's judgment, when they should be forsaking their sin. Why? Because their hearts are so hard and they're not willing to change their hearts. I've got a quote from Spurgeon. It says, Judgment may produce a carnal repentance, like a false repentance, right? A repentance that is of the flesh 
and after the manner of the sinful nature of men. In this repentance, the depravity of the heart remains the same in essence, though it takes another form in showing itself. Basically, if I can, can't get away with doing that, well, I'll do this other thing instead. I can get away with doing that. Okay. Though the man changes, he is not savingly changed. He becomes another man, but not a new man. The same sin rules in him, but it is called by a different or another name and wears another dress. The stone is carved into a more sightly shape, but is not turned into flesh. The iron is cast into another image, but is not transformed into gold. This carnal repentance is caused by fear. Does not every thief repent of robbery when he is convicted and sent to jail? <laughs> Does not every murderer repent of his crime when he stands under the fatal tree? So, another quote from Spurgeon here. This is real penitence, or real repentance, being truly sorry, when the man gives glory to the justice of God, even though it condemns him. O oh, my hearer, do you thus repent? Is sin really sinful to you? Do you see its desert of hell? If not, your repentance need to be repented of. <laughs> so, we need to repent of our false repentance sometimes. And I think this is true for all of us, you know. Yep. So basically, if we're truly repentant, we'll say, you know, I really deserve that punishment and thank you for punishing me because it's really shown me that it was wrong and I don't want to do that again. So again, this application, we can see it in ourselves and our kids. When we know that there will be a consequence, we change our behavior, but <laughs> we look for another way to satisfy our sinful desires. Okay. And if the consequence is removed, we often go back to that previous behavior. Yeah? So that's not true repentance. And another sign of incomplete or unreal repentance is when we complain about the consequence. That means we're not really sorry. I don't deserve that. You haven't humbled yourself, have you? But if you humble yourself, then you say, yeah, I did deserve that. I'm really sorry. So true repentance is marked by humility and willingness to change because we love Jesus more than we love our sin. And these people living in this time, they're not repenting. So verses 12 to 16. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together in the place called in Hebrew Armageddon or Hamagedo. So the river Euphrates, historically, the river Euphrates was used by the Romans as a barrier against invasions from the empires of the east. And in that day, it was 1,800 miles long, that's 2,900 kilometers long, and anywhere from 300 to 1,200 yards, that's roughly the same with meters, wide. It's always been considered the division between the Near East and the Far East. So the Euphrates River is a very important river. It's very difficult to cross. But its waters are going to be dried up. So the kings of the East, you know, your Chinese, your India, and Japan, all those armies now have direct access to the Promised Land, to the land of Israel. Just walk straight over. Off they go. With ease. Now, why are they going there? Well, most likely they're going there to rebel against a European based world leader, the Antichrist. But ultimately, they are there to fight against the Messiah. And you can read that in Psalm 2. So, verse 13, it says, I saw th three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon. So these 
frogs, they go around to all the different leaders, the other kings, the remaining seven kings there, and they are deceiving them and telling them to go to battle. And there's a good Old Testament analogy here. Back in Ahab's day, God wanted Ahab to go into battle so he would die in battle. That was God's plan for this wicked king. And he says, who's going to convince him to go to battle? And the deceiving spirits said, I will. <laughs> and so the deceiving spirits spoke through his prophets of Baal and they convinced Ahab to go into battle and he died. And in that story in 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 19 to 23, we have the heavenly vision where God says, okay, yep, you will succeed in deceiving him. So basically, demons are very deceptive and they are allowed by God sometimes to cause deception. And it happened once and now it's happening again. And they're deceiving all the world leaders to get the armies together and head into the Middle East to harm Megiddo, to the valley of Megiddo. And verse 14, it says, They are spirits of demons performing signs. Again, real signs and wonders are being used here. And they're used as tools of deception. So signs and wonders are what? Tools of deception. Or can be used as tools of deception. Okay, They can be used to confirm the gospel, but they can also be used as tools of deception. And as an application, I believe that today signs and wonders are being used to deceive many regardless if they are fake or real, like you get false healings and all that kind of stuff. People are flocking to these signs and wonders. They see evidence for the supernatural and they embrace it, but they're failing to check the source of the power. Is it from God or is it from Satan? Now, Deuteronomy chapter 13, 1-5 is interesting. It says, Suppose there are prophets among you or those who dream dreams about the future, and they promise you signs or miracles. And the predicted signs or miracles occur. If they say, come, let us worship other gods, gods you have not known before, do not listen to them. Now this next phrase is really important. Okay, It says, the Lord your God is testing you to see if you truly love him with all your heart and soul. Because if you don't love him, you'll follow those other people. You'll be impressed with their powers, their ability to tell the future or do these miracles and you'll go off on their false gospel and their false religion. Verse 4, Serve only the Lord your God and fear him alone. Obey his commands, listen to his voice, and cling to him. The false prophets or visionaries who try to lead you astray must be put to death, for they encourage rebellion against the Lord your God, who redeemed you from slavery and brought you out of the land of Egypt. Since they tried to lead you astray from the way the Lord your God commanded you to live, you must put them to death. In this way you will purge the evil from among you. So I believe today we have false prophets amongst us in the church. We're not living in the Old Testament times, so we can't put them to death, but we can avoid them. Okay? And we can warn people about them. Now the great day of God Almighty is not the great day of Satan. It's not going to be a great day for Satan. It's not going to be a great day for those who join the earth. It's going to be a great day for God. Okay, So who wins? God does. It's a great day for God. And verse 15, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So in the middle of this description of this coming battle, the battle of what we call the battle of Armageddon, the battle that happens when Jesus comes back, to the earth, there is a warning to be prepared. Okay? So you don't want to find yourself on the wrong team when the dust has settled and the battle is finished. And it's also giving great assurance to these believers who are still alive at the time. All right? So if you're a believer at this time and you're watching the Antichrist have complete dominion over and complete control over all the earth, and he's given authority to kill any believer that he comes across, you'll be going, oh God, are you really on the throne? Are you really in control? And this is God's promise. Yes, the day is coming 
when this is going to finish. The great day of the Lord, the battle of Armageddon, everything will change. The authority that the Antichrist had, the temporary authority for three and a half years to be able to kill and slaughter any believer at his will will be taken away. And Jesus is basically saying, don't compromise, don't give in to fear, stay strong because the victory is near. Now, the garments. Now, we know from the New Testament or other places in the New Testament, what do the garments represent? Our righteousness, right? We're dressed in white robes. It's the righteousness of Christ. So Galatians 3.27 is an example of putting on Jesus for salvation as justification, our positional righteousness. But we also are called to put on the nature of Jesus in terms of practical holiness in Ephesians 4.20-24. So basically we need to make a choice to submit to God and walk in his ways each day. Walking in his righteousness. We're saved by his righteousness, but then every day we have to make a decision to walk in his righteousness. So, it says, above all, we must not be naked, that is, without a covering. Now, what did Adam and Eve do when they're in the garden? They tried to cover themselves with leaves. Well, in that day, the leaves won't count and you'll be naked before God. You won't have a covering. Your sin will still be there. Your sin will not be covered. And verse 16, And they gathered them together in the place in Hebrew Armageddon. So this great battle is staged at Armageddon, or Hamagido. And this valley of Megiddo is in northern Israel. And there's been many, many battles there. Uh, some biblical ones include Deborah defeating Sisera, Gideon defeating the Midianites, Pharaoh defeating Josiah, king of Judah. And it's also a place of end-time mourning in Zechariah 12.11. And also throughout the centuries in Gentile history, over 200 battles have been fought in the region. 200 since 1468 BC, Pharaoh Thutmose III, and the latest one was 1917, World War I, with Lord Allenby of the British defeating the Turks there. So it's a very awesome battleground. It's a perfect spot to have a, a huge battle and a place to set up your armies. The battle will be fought in different places. We'll talk about that later. And now we go into the seventh bowl. Verse 17 and 21. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath, then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Interesting, eh? No more islands, no more mountains. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent, about 45 kilos. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. So let's go back to verse 17 there, and it says, It is done. Okay, there's no more delay. It's all going to finish. God has stretched out this time as long as he can, but now is the time to finish. It's all done. There's no more judgments to come. This is the end. Now, it's poured out his bowl into the air in verse 17. It's poured into the atmosphere. Now, who is the king of the air? Satan. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, Satan is described as the prince of the power of the air. Now, in verse 18, there was a mighty or a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as has not occurred since men were on the earth. So, you know, the largest or most severe earthquake ever measured was about nine. I can't remember where it was. But here, some people are saying it could be like a 20 or 25 on the Richter scale to cause this much damage, to get rid of all the mountains and to sink all the islands. It could be like 
beyond 10, okay? We're talking about massive destruction here. And uh, Hebrews talks about God shaking the earth, Hebrews 12.26. Now the great city was divided into three parts. This is Jerusalem. So the great city in this context is Jerusalem. And there's going to be these geographical changes to the landscape around Jerusalem. We'll talk more about that later. And the cities of the nations fell. So this is total global destruction. And again, probably 20 to 25 on the Richter scale. And it's not localized to one particular location. There's no epicenter for this earthquake. It's worldwide. So imagine the earth with not one structure left standing, not one house, not one skyscraper, and all the mountains flattened. All right, all the islands gone. Now, great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine and the fierceness of his wrath. So this we will learn more about in Revelation 17 and 18. So we'll look more into who, where this is and what happens next week. But the fierceness of his wrath, okay, it's describing a passionate outburst of anger. So it's not just being angry, but it's displaying and expressing your anger. Okay, God is expressing his anger, and Valwood says this combination of the words that talk about God's anger, thymos and orgy, the um, Greek words there, connotes the strongest kind of outpouring of divine judgment. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found again. The whole earth will be kind of flattened. It's like the Great Reset. <laughs> and then verse 21, Great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. So what do the people do? They blaspheme God. Instead of repenting, they blaspheme God. And in the scriptures, hail is used as a tool of judgment uh, many times. I won't go through that now. What I want to do is just give you the take-home message. What's the main point? As we discussed earlier, despite all their suffering, despite years of extensive evangelistic efforts, like the 144,000, the two witnesses, angels, etc., many still will not repent. So I want to warn us against the dangers of hardening your heart against God. So Hebrews 3, 12 and 13. Be careful then. Dear brothers and sisters, make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today, so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. So this is true for the believer and unbeliever alike. So I'm going to apply it to the believer and then the unbeliever. So first, for the believer, if we don't destroy or get rid of the sin in our lives, then that sin will destroy us. We'll still make it to heaven, but the journey is going to be pretty hard. Okay, Unnecessary pain for us, for others around us, and for God. We'll be a curse to those around us instead of a blessing. We're going to grieve the Holy Spirit, and we'll miss out on a heavenly reward. So, remember, sin will keep us from the Bible, and the Bible will keep us from sin. All right. The more you sin, the less you're going to want to read your Bible, and the more you read the Bible, the less you're going to want to sin. Now, for the unbelievers, every time that the Holy Spirit convicts them, and it says that in John 16, the Holy Spirit convicts them of the sin of not receiving Jesus as their Savior. Every time a person says no to the Holy Spirit's conviction, their heart grows just a bit harder. And eventually, as they get older, the hearts get harder and harder. And that's why I believe that it's only a relatively few older people get saved because all their lifetime they've been rejecting the ministry of the Holy Spirit, convicting them of their sin of not receiving Jesus. That's why it's so important to get the people when they're young. Kids are much more responsive because they haven't had all these years of hardening the hearts. So what's next? Well, chronologically, the second coming of Jesus Christ happens next in chapter 19, when Jesus returns to earth, defeats the armies of the world, sets up his kingdom, his millennial reign. So this is imminent. So I'm sorry to leave you at this really sad point, but just remember that the second coming is imminent right now, okay? In our story, in our chronology. 
Before we get to the second coming and read about that, though, we've got chapter 17 and 18, and it gives us more insight into the people, places, and events and organizations that are part of the semi-tribulation, and we'll go into the why mankind was so deceived in the next couple of weeks, and then it'll be the second coming, which is pretty exciting. Father, thank you for the gift of life that you've given us through your death on the cross. And Lord, as we learned in previous weeks about the testimony of the tabernacle, it all points to you. Lord, you are the mercy seat, Lord. Your your blood was shed and sprinkled on the real mercy seat in heaven. And the mercy seat is propitiation. It's the payment for our sins. Lord, right from the beginning, you've had this in mind, Lord, to make a way for us to be right with you again. But Lord, because of our sinful nature and because we choose to rebel against you, many will not experience the eternal life that you have freely given. So we just pray that our friends and families will have soft hearts, that we will have soft hearts, that we will choose to repent of anything that keeps us from you and choose to put you first in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.